Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Well, welcome back as we head into the top of our third hour. Hard to figure out the best way to introduce this. I, I suppose uh, if war makes great friendships, uh, I am I am just grateful for the friendship that uh, was forged in war, um, the friendship I developed with Andrew C. McCarthy. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute and a contributing editor at National Review, author of Many, many books. The one probably most relevant for our discussion, Willful Blindness, a memoir of the jihad. Um, Andy, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for being with us. Seth, it's always my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. I was just having a memory bubble. In years past, around 9-11, I used to have you on uh, regularly during the anniversaries, and I may have missed a few, and I regretted it. Um, speaking to uh, probably a mutual friend of ours the other day, his memories of 9-11, and I asked him how long it took him to realize he was in New York that day that um, it was al-Qaeda, and he said, you know, next day, and then it made, it, I was reminded when I first interviewed you about 9-11, you said you knew right away. Uh, people need to know a little bit of your biography if they don't already. You had been, as you write in Willful Blindness, really the tip of the spear that we had in fighting terrorism going back to the late 80s and early 90s. Let me start at 9-11 and then work backwards and forwards with you if I can. Andy, uh, would you reprise how you knew right away on 9-11 that it was al-Qaeda? Yeah, you know, Seth, it, um it's not any, uh, it's not that me or the people who were involved in all this stuff were uh, rocket scientists by any means. We, we made uh, plenty of miscalculations, too. It's just that we had been in this for eight years mm-hmm. prior to the 9-11 attack. Uh, we knew that the, uh, the first, the, the sort of declaration of war was a bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, we knew the MO was to go back to um, targets repeatedly. They would always uh, plan to do that. The attacks have been getting more audacious um, over the eight years. The mastermind of the, uh, the the hands-on mastermind of the 93 bombing, Ramsey Youssef, warned even as he was being carted away uh, to his well-deserved lifetime prison sentence that, uh, you know, our calculations were wrong this time, but next time we'll do it right. So, you know, I think it wasn't uh, as soon as it happened, uh, it was, to me, it seemed instantly implausible that it could have been anything but um, an attack of that kind. And what surprised me only was that there were a lot of government officials who said it wasn't until, I think even President Bush and Defense Secretary Rumsfeld said it wasn't until the second plane hit 
that they realized that the country was under attack. And yeah. now we're all, now what are we talking about? Half an hour? Yeah, right. Like that. But, right. But, right. Um, it's, they weren't, they weren't living with this for eight years like right. we were. So I don't blame them for thinking differently. There were plenty of people, in other words, that would have known because they knew this was coming, you being in that crowd. But for those that weren't in, the Department of Justice, those who hadn't, hadn't been involved in the prosecution of the blind shake, those who aren't part of the uh, counterterrorism of the FBI or the Department of Justice, those who weren't the Rick Rascorla types, they were caught unawares, right? Basically, as you put it in your yeah. book, right, uh, the Department of Justice was not merely counterterrorist spear. It was the entire spear, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I was uh, not that you could be gratified is the wrong word, but when 9-11 finally happened, I was very grateful that Bill Crystal, back in um, 1998, had asked me to write an essay for the Weekly Standard right. about the problems with our counterterrorism. Right. And I argued, this is three years before 9-11, I guess two years, um, that uh, we were treating a national security problem like it was a criminal justice sort of nuisance. Right. And you can't face it effectively that way. You can't, uh, you know, I think I at one point calculated, Seth, that um, in the eight years between the bombing of the World Trade Center and the destruction of the World Trade Center, we prosecuted exactly 29 people. Right. And I think about uh, a good 24 or so of the 29 were directly connected to the 93 bombing. So, there was a series of attacks after that, but most of them, we weren't able to prosecute anyone, and we certainly weren't able to prosecute the masterminds. And I would point out to people, you know, the most notorious thing that's happened in counterterrorism, other than the Taliban retaking uh, Afghanistan over the last year or so, is the killing of Zawahiri. Right. Zawahiri was under indictment by the Department of Justice since 1998. Right. But who got who got him 25 years later, or however long yeah. it was? It was the military. Yeah. Everybody significant has been gotten by the military, not by indictment. Andy, would it be appropriate, if you don't mind, um, I know we're now dusting off a few things, but it, this is history we need to know, and, 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 and I lament the fact that it's fading so quickly. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about how you came involved with the Omar Rahman prosecution and who the heck Omar Rahman was and then the fibers or the tentacles that reached out into yeah. Al-Qaeda? He's, a, he's the exception to the rule, I guess, because we did get him by uh, indictment, although many would say not enough and, and too late. But he was time. also living in the United States, too. He, he was by then, but he was a notorious person already by 1993 okay. in jihadist circles because he had issued the fatwa for the killing of Anwar Sadat, the uh-huh. Egyptian uh-huh. president, uh-huh. in, in 1981. He was a very influential figure, and I think... Seth, this is like the the nub of the problem of of why it's problematic that uh, our government has been afraid to deal with jihadist ideology. Omar Abdul Rahman was incapable of doing anything that would be helpful to a terrorist organization. Couldn't build a bomb, couldn't conduct an assassination, couldn't surveil a target. The only thing he could do for a jihadist organization was lead it. Mm-hmm. And that was because his mastery of the doctrine made him a figure of immense influence and enabled him to command people to commit acts of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And I think that should have been our textbook example of, you know, the danger of not 
facing up to the fact that this was an ideologically driven challenge because we didn't want to deal with where the ideology came from. Right. Right. We we have a um, we have an allergy to those kinds of ideologies, but there were sneezes and coughs and colds and flus all around him even before yeah. 93. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, even yeah. with the killing of uh, I, Mayor Kahani, maybe. Yeah, you're exactly right. And look, from the the reaction that we had in later years was no different from the reaction that we had at the beginning. The right. day after Mayor Kahani. Right was killed by Saeed Nasser, who was a, a subordinate of the Flying Sheikh. Um, the New York, the chief of detectives of the New York City Police Department came out and said that it was a an act of a lone gunman right. that, that didn't appear to be, you know, to have any religious or or uh, ideological motivation. Right. And they couldn't even conceivably have done an investigation by them, but they wanted to get right out and, dis, and dispel any idea that this was in any way traceable to... Islam, and it's kind of like you know saying that um, uh, you know I should I, I should hide my head in the sand um, and be ashamed because the IRA exists. Like that has anything to do with me. You know? um, okay, right. You know, no, fair. That, I, I'm I, laughing because it's a great illustration of the absurdity of it. Yeah, right, right. Well, I don't pretend that I don't pretend that the stigma uh, for you know the Irish in America. Is is uh, any great shakes compared to you know what what Muslims in America who are obviously not jihadists uh, have felt they've had to endure because of jihadism? But on the at the same time, um, I'm pretty full throated in my condemnation of the uh, of the IRA, and I think we could have used a lot more of that from. Islamic community. I, I wonder, by the way, God, there are so many pieces to pick up on this. I, I wonder if you would agree that um, that that some of that notion of uh, the charge was Islamophobia, the fear and the and the and the and the discrimination against Muslims in America. I, I wonder if it's not too callous to say a lot of that was overstated, too. I think it, it was overstated, Seth, because. What people didn't want to come to grips with, there's a, there's a, you know, in the progressive era, there's this, uh, the animating spirit is that, uh, you know, mankind is perfectible, we're being constructed, we're all the same, basically, and we're all just, uh, you know, raw material that can be molded a certain way, and we get to the end of history, and, yeah. you know, Western democracy wins. And, and the fact of the matter is, is Samuel Huntington brilliantly recognized um, there are different civilizations and different. Man, Andy, this is a huge piece of it. Let me. This is a huge piece. Let me take a quick commercial break. I don't want to lose this thought, and we'll pick up on yep. it full throatedly on the other side, if you don't mind. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Andrew C. McCarthy. Uh, the book of his, of many, we're discussing really is "Willful Blindness: A Memoir of the Jihad." He was fighting it before it was uh, well known to the rest of us. He is a hero to me. He's a hero to many others. He's also a dear friend and contributing editor at National Review. I'm Seth. He's Andy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Andrew C. McCarthy is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Easy enough, helpfully enough. Andy, right before the break, you were getting into, in regard to 9-11 and its aftermath and the self-criticism and the self-examination this country was going through, you're getting into this interesting thesis 
com- uh, really competition of theses between the end of history and yet the prominence, Huntington's thesis, the prominence of ideology as it came to bear on Islam in America. Feel free to pick that up wherever you want to. Well, you know, I think that um, what we what what we didn't want to grasp at the policymaker level is that there's not one way of doing civilization. Mm-hmm. There's a variety of different, and the fact and the fact that um, um, we we really need to grasp that number one because you need to be in the shoes of the other person right. to understand what that person is thinking, right. but also because we ought to be proud of Western civilization, right. uh, and, you know, which has been in competition with other civilizations and uh, in, has, has many way, things to its credit. And uh, I, I think is um, the reason it was uh, somewhat arrogantly thought that we had reached the end of history was because we do, on a, on a certain sensible level, believe that we have the best approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's simply not the only approach, and I think part of the reason I never thought the democracy project, which I think was a real deviation after after nine eleven, the reason that didn't have a chance of working was because it, it was based on a false premise that once people in the Islamic uh, countries and territories understood Western democracy, they'd be all for it; they would want it. And that was, I think, it's a terrible way to talk down to people because it wasn't that they didn't understand Western democracy and Western civilization. It's that they think their way is better. It's not that they didn't get what we were selling. They didn't want it. Um, and maybe there'll come a point when they do. Um, but it, if, if that happens, it will be decades from now. And in the meantime, you can't force-feed civilizational transformation. That's the kind of thing that has to, number one, it's got to take place on its own rhythm and its own time, but it's not ever going to be led by a competitor civilization. I mean, there's, there's some places in the Islamic world where they don't want what we're selling just because we're selling it. I, I want to I mean, compliment you on that point, that. too. I want to compliment you on that. In a time <laughs> when a lot of people are saying we were wrong about Iraq, uh, we were wrong about that, and a lot of people are, particularly conservatives, you don't have to say that. I remember early on, you were always writing and worrying and rubbing your hands about that project. You never thought it would work. So just well, know, I never just, thought the democracy. Yeah. But to be clear, I, you know, because I don't want to be, I don't want to appear to be something I'm not. I supported the Iraq. Oh yes, I know. The, oh on yes. The, on, yes. Uh, on the premise that it was offered, which was that uh, uh, we were telling the telling the country, the world, you're either with us or with the terrorists. And, and, I and there were a lot of terrorists in Iraq, were, yes, of course. Right, yes, right, right, right. But right. the idea that that we should go there to, like, turn, um, you know, Baghdad into Bayonne, no. Was no. that, Andy, would you say Iraq was one of the greatest mistakes? Uh, uh, there were a lot, and there were successes, too. Or do you, big question, do you think maybe we made a lot of errors in the opposite direction with Iran, which I know you and Michael Ledeen and a few others, I think I was in that crowd, thought we were ignoring too much as well. How, how do you square the level of mistake vis-a-vis Iran and Iraq in our action and inaction in both countries? You know, I think there's a, a big, unfortunately, the, the problem with Iraq is that um, once it started to go south, I think the Bush administration had a case to be made for 
uh, the prevalence of jihadists in Iraq, and they declined to make it. Yep. You know, I think yep. that they felt like they they after the after the uh, WMD thing blew up, they decided we got to get out of this politically, yep. and they didn't want to defend themselves. Yep. And as a result, that you know, the the losers don't write the history. Right. right. So the people who are opposed to it have written the history. Right. And I think that's been. I'm not. I don't think Iran. I mean, Iran is a separate but related set of problems. Mm-hmm. But with Iraq, I think the the more related set of problems, Seth, for the you know for how you look back at history, is that um, we we underestimated the the depth of the threat prior to nine eleven, and then we probably overcorrected afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that people who were you know because we didn't want to single out people for connection to Islam, we decided to make everybody subject to the surveillance state which people ultimately started to push against. Mm-hmm. So it sounded like we were, you know, our reaction to 9-11 was uh, to try to remake the world overseas and to make America worse here. Um, and I don't think that's, a, it, it, it's, it's too much of a thumbnail uh, to say it that way, but I do think that that is how people are, are choosing to remember it. I think it's much more complicated than that, but that's the bumper sticker. Uh, no, I think that's a fair analysis too, Andy. Uh, I do, and you know, speaking of allergies, I, I suppose we, after Iraq um, started going south, we got an allergy. We got an allergy about doing much with regard to Iran. Would that be fair to say, or is that too simple? Well. I don't know. I think Iran's kind of a 40-year mistake, you know, okay. the, in the sense that, that every government after uh, Khomeini uh, took over in 1979 has thought the rapprochement was right around the corner. Okay. But, you know, any second now we were going to, you know, have the big deal with Iran. And in the meantime, they just continued to kill Americans, and we kept saying, like, any minute now we'll yeah. be able to fix this. Okay. By the way, I, I was I've been interviewing a few people um, on the Iran uh, seventy nine revolution lately, and I was working off the thesis. I don't know if I put it together from the readings I had done or if it was just something I read that stuck with me. But though there is the Shiite Sunni divide, I was working off the thesis that even Sunni oriented terrorism changed after nineteen seventy nine. That the Iran revolution really changed. The Middle East really changed um, radical Islam or animated it, uh, really changed terrorism generally, regardless of the sect. Do you agree with that or am I just am I conflating too much? I agree with that emphatically. Okay. Okay. The most the most influential people I can think of in Sunni jihadist circles were the blind sheikh and bin Laden. Right. And they both thought very highly of uh, of Khomeini, uh, and even though he was a Shiite, and they you know had virulent problems with the Shiites, they liked the idea that he was willing to take it to the West, mm-hmm. that he was willing to take the battle to the United States, mm-hmm. which is what they thought had to happen too. So it did change the it did change the perspective um, from you know localized fighting and strife to to something that was uh, more fit for a global jihad. Yeah, his actual proved their theoretical, I suppose one might say. Andrew McCarthy is our guest. He is, of course, senior fellow at National Review Institute, National Review contributing editor, author of a great many books. Uh, his history of uh, of the precursors and the post-aftermath of 9-11 is Willful Blindness, 
a memoir of the jihad. We'll take a quick commercial break and be right back with more from Andrew C. McCarthy. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Andy McCarthy, Andrew C. McCarthy is our guest. We're talking uh, 9-11 pre and post thoughts a little bit. Andy, um, we, a few of us, put together an organization shortly after 9-11 to go to college campuses and talk about radical Islam and the threat that it was posing towards the West. And uh, a few of us, uh, was Charles Krauthammer, Jim Woolsey, me, Bill Bennett, and a few others, and I remember uh, a, a reporter at the USA Today, Walter Shapiro, said, are you guys nuts? No one needs to be taught about this stuff. America's never going to forget. And I remember Bill said, mm-hmm. give it give it, give it, it a couple few years. Um, give it yeah. a couple few years. Uh, we remember Pearl Harbor in a way more so than we remember 9-11. Maybe not where you live, but I think where I live. Your oh, th- I think even here. Okay. I think that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, because... I think, Seth, from the beginning, there were um, there were a lot of people who were invested in the idea of um, that, that radical Islam was really a small problem that could be contained by the criminal justice mm-hmm. system. Nine mm-hmm. eleven uh, was inconvenient for them, but it didn't change their overall outlook of it. And some people, in, I should say, in good faith, believe that that is the right way to. Um, to regard it, and they it, an assiduous effort was made not only to remake Islam uh, in in the eyes of the West to the point where like Islam doesn't mean anything except peace. Like you would think that there's no it's got no tenets at all except that it's like relentlessly peaceful, um, which is which by in and of itself was a was a distortion. Um, but I think that they were invested in the idea of minimizing what happened for a variety of reasons. And during the Obama administration, there was a, an energetic effort was, was undertaken to turn 9-11 into a day of service. Mm-hmm. In other words, I that we, that. Should, um, yep. we, should, we should dedicate the day to doing things that the government thinks are good, rather than remembering who attacked us and why. Um, I remember that, and I remember us going nuts, us conservatives generally. (laughs) Not us. Right, but a a lot of people were going nuts about the changes in rhetoric in the Obama administration, overseas contingency operations, my former governor, uh, workplace violence at Fort Hood. But the truth of the matter is a lot of that really did start in the Bush administration, didn't it? Um, I remember well, George that, Bush. Our, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say from our conversation uh, at the beginning here, it started before the Bush administration. Yes, I mean, fair it enough. Started from uh, yeah. from the time Kahani uh, got killed. Yes. I mean, they, people people think, and they it, it, look. The left believes this in a in a, a variety of different iterations. This is just the Islamic uh, terrorism version. Right. Right. But they believe that by policing language, you can make phenomena disappear. That's right. Like they, like they'll cease to exist if we if we just don't assign words to them. Right. You know, and Bin I Laden is not crazy, an Islamic but, leader. Uh, Karen yeah. Hughes wanted to go overseas to hear what their grievances were to better understand them, so we would know their language. Uh, Bush spoke at a mosque that was. Uh, 
you know, quite prominently as Stephen Emerson and others exposed, you know, peddling some of the worst stuff there was. Islam is only a religion of peace, right? I mean, that that's what we were used to by the time Obama came to office. Yes, and as a result, I think that we didn't, um, we, 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 it was a double whammy in that we underrated the threat, but we also had very important allies in the Islamic community. I've always stressed that, that um, you know, we couldn't have made these cases without very heroic Muslims who infiltrated jihadist organizations and helped us collect evidence and whip our evidence into court into yep. Uh, into something we could present to a yep. jury and convince them with. Yep. And we have Muslims who fought yep. heroically in the U.S. Armed Forces. Yep. But I think what we did by our approach was to underrate the heroism of those people uh, and their passion to, to uh, you know, uh, improve the lot of Muslims worldwide by taking on um, the, the, uh, the sickness in some of the fundamentalist ideology. Let me pick up on that fundamentalist ideology when we come back. You and I have always agreed, and you were speaking about it earlier, in the power of ideology that perhaps we Americans just aren't trained generally to understand. Again, maybe not us, Andy, and, and our friends and, 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 and colleagues who, who are scholars in this area. But maybe there's, there's, a, there's a refusal to understand uh, something Hannah Arendt called the power of ideology, which she said was the most powerful force on earth. Uh, let me pick up on that with you when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Andrew C. McCarthy, author of Willful Blindness, a memoir of the, G- a memoir of the Jihad, and a lot of other books, too. We'll be right back. Andrew C. McCarthy is our guest. He's been very generous uh, with his uh, time and scholarship. Thanks for doing this, Andy. Uh, I hope um, I, I, I hope it uh, it's 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 been working out well for you. And if there's anything I'm not asking that you'd like to speak about, feel free to raise it. But I wanted to ask you about the issue. You keep coming back to it. I can't avoid it. Of ideology. Um, Americans generally, maybe Westerners, I don't know. We we seem to have a hard time understanding threats, physical and otherwise, that are born out of an ideology, uh, perhaps Nazism, perhaps Marxism, but certainly what would you call it, jihadism, Islamofascism, radical Islam. We, we, we treat them all uh, far less toxically than, than they actually are, and we always get bit in the butt by it, don't we? Yeah, I you know, and I came to think Seth, that the most accurate description of the ideology is Sharia uh, supremacism. Okay, uh, as Sharia is Islam's uh, not only legal system, but it's really its socio-political uh, okay. framework. Okay, and the reason I the reason I think that's I think this is an anecdote that goes directly to your point, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, we had a very long defense case in the blind shake trial. Mm-hmm. And the blind sheikh himself didn't testify, but a number of people came in and testified on his behalf and on behalf of the other defendants. And every now and then, you know, they were perfectly nice people and very, I, I thought they were, most of them at least, were authentically moderate people who would no, long, no more become a jihadist than, than you or me. Mm-hmm. But every now and then, a question of ideology would come up. Yeah. A question of theology, mm-hmm. where they would say, you know, what does jihad mean? What is Sharia? And the answer invariably, and this really took me aback sitting in the courtroom, would be, I'm not competent to address that. For that, you would have to ask 
that guy. And then uh-huh. he points to the homicidal maniac in the, in the corner of my courtroom. Uh-huh. And it's just the power of that was that here were very, you know, perfectly nice, reasonable people, uh, seemingly, who were, with respect to key tenets of their own belief system, willing to cede authority to somebody who was at war with the United States and believed that mass murder was the proper way to, to further the Sharia agenda. And I, I, to me, that was a very powerful example of, of how little we understand uh, and appreciate that phenomenon. Andy, um, do we do we fully still understand this problem? I mean, we were worried about painting with too broad a brush, as we always should be, and we had some experiences in our past that you know uh, instructed on instructed us on this. Certainly, the internment of Japanese Americans would have been one prominent one. But it's an odd thing today. Yesterday, I saw your secretary, our secretary of Homeland Security at Ground Zero talking about the the threat at on 9-11 at Ground Zero, the threat of American domestic terrorism. It's almost as if the broad brush we were so careful to try and avoid post 9-11 against Islam, we, we, we tend to be politicizing and painting in political purposes here. I thought it was disastrous and disgraceful that he said that, but for different reasons than I'm asking you. There is this weird conflation. Ideology matters sometimes, and it doesn't at others, it seems like. Yeah, and I also think there's, uh, you know, there's progressive hypocrisy. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm willing to condemn all political violence, whatever ism is, generating amen how hard should um, that be i'm totally with you it shouldn't be it, right. right shouldn't be right. hard at all right and yet what what we have seen is exactly what you described which is that people bent over backwards to to make apologies for jihadists mm-hmm. um to the point where you know it, it, some people <laughs> to say like we had it coming yeah you know? right and then on the other hand uh because the uh like the trump people who who uh, rioted at the Capitol? I don't. I'm not carrying any brief for them, but the fact is, they're the political antagonists of the progressives. So it's perffectly fine to paint them all over the broad brush, which they hope to paint all the rest of us with as well. And it's just a you know, it's cynical politics. But I hope I hope most people recognize that. Yeah, yeah, I I hope so too. The Democrats, you know, they they are able, or at least the liberals and the leftists are able to do more with it, I think, than otherwise would have had purchase, just because they have so many communication outlets. But um, let me let me take the last couple minutes, uh, two minutes left in this, Andy, and ask you what what is left unsaid um, by you here in your memories, twenty one years out from nine eleven. What 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 would you like to think, what would you like us to be thinking about 21 years later? Well, I, I guess the thing I worry most about, Seth, is that um, if you would ask me um, right after 9-11, why was this able to happen? In part, I would say we let our defenses down, and that is a, a, an area that I think we've addressed well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the intelligence community and on-the-ground law enforcement uh work in a more coordinated way, night and day better than they did when I first got involved in counterterrorism. But the other element I would have said that they needed to project power on the scale they did was active partnership with a host government. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what they had right prior to 9-11 with the Taliban in Afghanistan and the funding of the Iranians. Now flash forward 21 years later, and they have partnership with the Taliban and funding from the Iranians. So in the same exact country, thinks, in the same exact yeah, country. Right. Yeah. So yeah. if anybody thinks that that's a, you know, that that's a roadmap for anything but catastrophe, I don't know uh, what else it is. Andy, um, thank you. Thank you so much for all your friendship, all your scholarship, and all your real generosity with time. I know you're pulled in a lot of directions. I'm just amazed at your ability to output. And, and um, you know, I, I also want to thank uh, a mutual friend of ours who put us together in the first place many years ago, Neil Kazadoy, and uh, yes. just uh, good good friendships born from, from tragedy. But also, if we learn from you, I've always said you're the teacher America needs. We can avoid uh, those tragedies, so nice you bet. Thank you, Andy McCarthy. You, God bless you and Godspeed. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us, and thank you to one of our chief sponsors, which is Y-Refi. If you're looking for a remarkable investment opportunity, do check out my friends at Y-Refi, a due diligence-approved firm. They are offering a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors all in a collateralized and secure portfolio. You're interested in doing well by doing good for others, as my friends at Y-Refi do? Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 855-316-3087. Listening to Andy uh, talk about uh, that whole pregnant issue of uh, radical Islam, uh, Sharia supremacy, Islamophobia. I was reminded of something Tony Blair, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, wrote in his memoirs on the topic, which uh, I thought was strong and I think true and still a good framework. He wrote, quoting directly, In the mindset that is modern Islam, there is one spectrum, not several. At the furthest end of the spectrum are the extremists who advocate terrorism to further their goal of an Islamic state. It is true they are few in number, but their sympathizers reach far further along the spectrum than we think. While many do not agree with terrorism, they understand why it is happening. This was Andy's point about witnesses in the trial. They understand why it is happening. Blair concludes, still further along the spectrum are those who condemn the terrorists, but in a curious and dangerous way, buy into bits of their world view. They agree with the extremists that the U.S. is anti-Islam. They see invasions of Muslim nations as because they are Muslim nations. They see Israel as the symbol of Western anti-Islamic prejudice. This group stretches uncomfortably far into the middle of the spectrum. He goes on, Tony Blair does, and he's speaking now of those who condemn the terrorists and their worldview, but then says even this group has not yet confidently found their way to articulating a thoroughly reformed and modernizing view of Islam. In other words, it is true they find the terrorism repugnant. They wish to be in alliance with the Western nations against it. But it is yet to translate into an alternative narrative for Islam that makes sense of its history and provides a coherent vision for its future. Tony Blair did not know our friend Zudi Jasser, for that is where that is answered. 
Zudi Jasser has that answer. And to the degree that this is going to plague us for decades, if not generations to come, it'll be to the degree to which we ignore the works of Dr. Zudi Jasser and his project at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. God bless you all. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Again, I'm Seth Leibson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Lots of channels. Nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel. Straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525.